Welcome to the 23rd episode of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Berlumblad, and... And with me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, today we're going to discuss um, something that's a bit uh, amorphous, I suppose, but but it's really present in the tech debate, and it's it's one of those pervasive themes that it would be helpful to understand at a more uh, basic level, and that is the the big in big tech. What you know, we hear big tech all the time. It's the tech giants. There's there's something about size here in the debate that seems to permeate almost every single conversation. So what what is big about yeah. big tech? That's a, g- a great question because I think there are actually lots of different dimensions to bigness. Um, so, so one, and I guess the, the sort of uh, overriding one is big in terms of user base. Um, but what's actually quite curious with tech is you can be big in, in that dimension whilst being very small as a company. So for example... Mm-hmm. You know, when Facebook bought WhatsApp, it, it had, you know, hundreds of millions of users and yet only a handful of employees because it's a relatively sort of simple piece of technology. Um, so, so that's sort of big in terms of user base, I guess, is the one that most people think of. But the other dimensions would be big in terms of money, you know, how much revenue are you getting or uh, big in terms of uh, the amount of information and data that you hold. Um, and as I say, so sometimes these will all come together and sometimes they'll actually be quite different for different products and services. And sometimes it feels as if big is specifically not about something that is in a static way large, but something that grows fast. How much of big is about fast growth and that is enabled by network effects in tech markets, example? Yeah, so, so it's the growth, but also I, I guess it's when you talk about network effects, it's that sort of perception that, um, you know, that, that everyone is going to gravitate towards a particularly big product or service uh, and, and that therefore you, you grow quickly, you, you get to be dominant in your market and then then everything else stops. <laughs> and and uh, there is this sort of idea as well that, you know, all of the other plants wither in the shade that is cast by the biggest plant um, in the forest. And so there's a sort of, there's that sort of perception that bigness also has a stifling effect because only one player can be big in a particular market. Um, and, and I guess the sort of classic example to look at there would be uh, what was the sort of to the search and social networking. But when we, we look at search, you know, what once somebody has gone out and indexed the, the entire internet, I mean, you, you can't be a small search engine in the sense that if you've only got a small index of only a bit of the internet, you're not actually that useful. And so, you know, you have to be big enough to be able to index the whole internet to, to act as a general purpose search. Of course, there's the specialist versions of it. But the thing that you go to to find something on the internet by definition, has to be big <laughs> if it's going to be useful. So that's sort of one dimension. You need that, you know, that muscle, that computing power, and that massive index and database. Uh, on the social side, it's more, you know, if you're going to join a network, you want you want the your friends and contacts to be there again, or it's not particularly useful to you. So again, a big social network, from the point of view of there being a, all of the people that you need on it, tends to be better if it's general purpose as opposed to specialists you know you're fine with a a small social network of just a small group of people if that's all the people that you want to engage with but if you're going online to expand your social circle to make friends to meet people with similar interests of course big is going to be better because there's going to be more people with your interests uh, on the bigger network than, than there will be on a smaller network 
Yes, and yet still, I mean, big is rarely associated with any positive values. It's it's interesting. The first time I heard big tech, I, I really I reacted viscerally and sort of scrunched up my face because I felt this this can't be good because the only other examples of big I could come up with was big pharma, big oil, and big tobacco. And it seems as if, and this goes back a long way to Justice Brandeis' idea of this notion of the curse of bigness, that when, when a company or an organization or any social phenomenon really becomes big enough, its very size has a detrimental effect on the society that it exists in. And yet still, that doesn't seem to be quite right, because in many different markets, you see this power law distribution where you have a few big actors and then you have a a long tail of smaller actors. It seems as if the sort of bigness in itself is is more of a natural phenomenon than than one that is engendered by deviousness or or recklessness on behalf of corporations. Why do you think big has gotten such a bad rep? Yeah, so I think it's partly... Um, I think probably two, two elements. So one is partly this notion that you're stifling everyone else. And again, the, the, the great sort of irony in a sense is that what the internet does more than anything is lower the barriers to people creating new uh, products and services. So, so you know, and this was the great hope, and maybe this is also part of the curse for the companies that have been successful, that the, the vision for the internet was this uh, very open access network where anyone can turn up and build a service and get out there uh, to this global market that we've talked about a number of times, your default position is to be on for business globally. And it's very, very low cost to be able to do that. Um, and that, that still does hold true. I can build my search engine and make it available to the whole world and try and compete with Google. The, the barriers to me doing that are very low, I think, compared with I know the barriers to creating a television station or, you know, a factory or a lot of things that you had to create in the past. It may not be a very good search engine until I've built up my processing capability, but I can start and, and get, get a foothold in the market. So part of this sort of curse of bigness is, is an assumption that, you know, the big companies are somehow um, stifling or, or stopping that vision of a thousand flowers blooming being realized, so stopping all these these little players getting into the market. We could dig into that and ask the question whether the big, big companies are stopping the little ones or not. The second element, though, I think is, and perhaps more to the, the sort of Brandeis comments you made and, and, and thinking about some of the other markets like Big Pharma, et cetera, et cetera, is, is just some sort of innate uh, uh, assumption that we have that when an organization gets big and powerful, and so this is more about power than it is yeah. necessarily about sort of strict economics, when it is powerful, it will abuse its power to maintain its market position. And that's what that's the assumption we make about pharma and oil and these people, you know, uh, certainly I think particularly on the left of politics, that assumption is made that that, you know, a, a large pharmaceutical company, yes, it's going to produce drugs that are really important, but it's also going to exert its muscle and its control over our health uh, to kind of advance its own interests and, and keep others out of the market. And again, we can test that assumption, but I think that that um, power assumption or abuse of power assumption is also a critical component of why big is bad. Yeah, and it's interesting because in traditional competition law, for example, you make a distinction between dominance, which is how lawyers say big, and abuse of dominance, which is when you use your power for purposes that are not legit. And so in in one way, we, we manage to hold 
these two things in our heads at the same time, that something can be big and not necessarily bad. But but they've now been increasingly conflated. And I think it's interesting. You mentioned the internet. Nobody says the internet is big. Um, you know, we don't talk about big. We don't talk about big encyclopedias when we talk about Wikipedia. Although they're think, arguably the largest. I mean, there's 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 something where this has really. I mean, the the we antonym need to of break up the internet, is, Nicholas. The Nicholas, the internet yes, is too need to big. Break you up need to break internet. it up. <laughs> no, and 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 their sizes and intensity. I think the antonym of big actually there is open. Uh, yeah. So that open becomes the the opposite of big. So you know, it's an open encyclopedia. It's an open network, and so it's it's interesting to see how these concepts are are interacting. I think, and and uh, it's it's. I mean, to me, if we talk about so so. Let's get into a few of these things that that bigness is supposed to to cause. So you talked about the the shadow of the large plant killing the small plants, uh, which doesn't seem to be what's happening in the Amazonas, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> let's let's. Let's talk about let's talk about what is called the kill zone. This is the the trendy term of the idea that if you are trying to get something funded within uh, the sphere of influence of a large tech company, you're simply not going to get the venture funding. You're simply not going to be able to compete because there's this kill zone in which venture capitalists invest zero or nothing into to new industries. So. What's the evidence of that, and is there a counterpoint to to that uh, model? You yeah. think? I mean, there, there are a number of studies have been done that I think actually, again, may partly depend on who paid for them, but they can point in different directions as to you know this effect, particularly on investment. So, so yes, there are uh, studies have been done that that seem to suggest that um, VCs will stay away from areas like social networking. You know, because Facebook is so so uh, dominant in that market that there's just no point in investing in new um, social networks. Um, but then, arguably, you know, pe- people are taking that money and investing in in other services that don't quite look like your, your classic Facebooky type social network, but may still end up competing for people's attention and therefore pulling them away. And so, you you can look at a service like like TikTok, you know, coming into the market. Now, TikTok is not a Facebook clone. Uh, and yet it certainly does, I think, compete for people's attention on phones and is now increasingly c- competing for advertising dollars. So so question, you know, the question we need to ask is whether if venture capitalists, yes, are not funding clones of existing services, there's a kill zone around that existing service, at least for funding clones, if they are funding services that nevertheless come into the market and, and have an impact, is that still healthy? Uh, is that still something we should welcome? Um so that's one part. The other, the other part, of course, is the acquisition uh, piece, which is again the, the assumption that if if um, you're a funder, what you're often looking for is to fund something that that you're going to get a pretty quick and healthy return on. And one of the best ways of getting a quick and healthy return is for you essentially to have funded a piece of one of these big services. So you you build up something. I know a, a health app uh, that's a pretty good health app. Um, but really your goal is to have a Google or a Facebook come along and buy that health app and, and then scale it out to, you know, billions of users. But you don't have to wait to do all that scaling to get your money back. You're going to get it back at a healthy price when a Google or Facebook buys it. But again, it, it means that there's not uh, another large platform coming onto the market that, that, you know, these individual components are being wrapped up into the existing large platforms and potentially making them even stronger and even more successful. And so I think it's a combination of those 
those sort of two effects. So one is, is uh, yes, we're not going to fund clones and therefore we're not going to fund direct competitors. But question, if the money goes into something that's that's uh, competing from a slightly different position, you know, how do we feel about that? And the second one is, yeah, when VCs come into the market, are they are they essentially looking to just fund something to grow modestly and then be bought out as opposed to fund something that will be another Google or a Facebook or a major platform? Yeah, and it's interesting because I remember Halvarian saying that if you if you really look at it, what happens around large companies is actually that you have exit strategies available to you that could be licensing or acquisitions or mergers or some similar things that you wouldn't have access to if you didn't actually have the big companies in that market. And what it brings to mind is is a really interesting comparison with, say, like pharma. So let's look at pharma. So pharma has a few very large companies uh, that have uh, a somewhat oligopolic, uh, oligopolistic structure. And around them, there's this universe of small and medium-sized companies that are building technology, new medicines, etc. And at some point, the major exit strategy they're looking for is not to grow up and be a new um, AstraZeneca, but they're actually trying to license their stuff and then get it in. So there's a ton of innovation around a heavily regulated center. And and that that actually, I think, raises another question, and that is, okay, Big Pharma got big because they were really good at competing. They offered good products. They offered all of these things. But they stayed big because they were regulated, and increasingly the FDA required that their products be tested and that the compliance costs that were imposed on them were such that they created a moat around the big pharma companies. So big pharma essentially got a ton of compliance costs, translated it into entry barriers or into a regulatory moat. And that then created the market structure where you have a kernel of oligopolistic uh, companies and a universe outside of small companies and a ton of innovation pressured out to the sides. That seems to be happening in tech now as well. So tech might have gotten big with network effects, but if it stays big, it seems to me that it will be with the help of the regulators. Absolutely. I think that that's exactly the direction we're, we're heading in. Um, and, and just to give you an example, it, it, there's a new rule that's coming into force, actually, I think on the 1st of July around paying uh, sales tax, value-added tax in the European Union. It's already happened for the UK, but the European Union's now going to uh, sort of create this law. And, and it says to small traders, um, if you want to kind of sell stuff through your own website, you're going to have to figure out the VAT rules for all of the different countries you operate in and charge VAT accordingly. But if you use a major platform, an e-commerce platform, the e-commerce platform is going to be required to do all of this for you. And you can see which way you're going to go. It's the, the small guys, just to your farmer example, the small guys, you know, there you can do your e-commerce. But if you want to do international e-commerce in the EU and not have the headache of registering for VAT everywhere and figuring it out, you should go to you know, an eBay or an Etsy or an Amazon and, and have them do it for you. And that's just one small example of an increasing number of regulatory pressures that we're seeing that I think will, will do exactly what you described. They will say, look, if you're the you know, small online business and you want to focus on building your online business but not focus on worrying about compliance stuff, hey, you know, the best way to do this is going to be to buy services from one of the, the giants, one of the tech giants, who are going to do the compliance stuff for you, whether that's value-added tax calculations for international transactions or, or any other kind of requirement that's going to be imposed, uh, some of the data protection requirements. And frankly, it may be 
a lot safer for you to be storing your data uh, with one of these big giants who's going to have a GDPR compliance regime in place than it is to have data on your own server where you've got the headache of complying with all the information security rules and and if you get it wrong you're the one that's in you know deep trouble so as i say i think your your analysis is exactly correct that um uh, big farmer is i think the way that we are headed or or the farmer market is the way that we're uh, headed with the current regulatory pressures um and then i think the question for policymakers is you know, is are they okay with that? I mean, they they settle with that for pharma because they prioritize safety over everything else, uh, and so I don't think anyone is. Which is seems arguing. a lot like what they're doing with tech, right? It seems <laughs> exactly. to be a regulatory answer to to the question of safety and security, and the fears and anxieties brought about by, in this case, medical science or medical technology, and and in this other case, by by social technology or web technology. So, so it seems as if you know. Uh, a response that society likes to technological or scientific change is to build oligopolistic markets with uh, a larger company, a lot of a sort of universe of small companies being innovative and innovation and risk being allocated to the edges of that corporate uh, network, that market network. Now, this raises a question, though, because currently in the debates around uh, competition law and competition policy, one of the strands, a really strong one, is to increase merger controls and acquisition controls and essentially shut that avenue off. Now, if you imagine pharma market with no ability to license your product or no ability to be acquired by a larger company, what would happen in that situation would be that you would essentially have outsourced all of the risk and innovation to the edges of the network and then cut it off because there's no actual ability to exit for those small companies unless they try to grow into large companies, which they can't because of the threshold effects that they have with the compliance costs they have to assume at some point in their growth curve. So so you, it seems you have to choose, right? Either you have the oligopolistic response to your anxiety over technological change and keep mergers and acquisitions really open and encourage licensing in order to get innovation. Or you say, we're just going to not regulate this market because we think it's still open enough that anyone can actually be a winner and anyone can take the big prize and anyone can grow. So we're going to leave it as it is with more of a laissez-faire, hands-off version and see, you know, once it all settles down and the dust settles, see who's, who's still on top. But you can't do both. You can't say we're going to have an oligopolistic structure with no mergers and acquisitions without sacrificing the third, which would be innovation and, and technological change, right? So, so the, there are some, there is some thinking that sort of tries to, um, uh, you know, reconcile those those two sort of conflicting interests. So, so one is, I, I don't think that that you know we're on a path towards this more uh, heavily regulated world, and in that heavily regulated world governments are going to inevitably sort of steer things towards a few points of control. And those points of control will be the large platforms, uh, will be the the app stores and so on. And so I, I think that's inevitable. Now, one of the ways that they're trying to square this and, and keep things innovative is, is to uh, say, well, perhaps we should regulate those large platforms in a special way so that they are required or we will we will manage the terms under which they are they will give access to others they'll be required to give access so this comes under various banners that there's the sort of uh, public utility banner uh, there's the interoperability banner so you can use, use different terms for this but essentially a model in which you know you might say to to companies effectively you've got to do your business through 
a central platform because collecting taxes is the most important thing to us as governments and and therefore we're going to make you do it. But we're going to regulate the terms under which that platform has to offer this service to you. We're not going to allow them to dictate the terms. Um, and that way, as a small service, you would, in theory, get advantage of the distribution of the large platform, get advantage of them doing the regulatory stuff for you, but you wouldn't have to sell yourself to them. You'd be able to stay independent of them, but but rely on government to, to regulate the terms under which they do that. If we think of you know one of the more controversial acquisitions, the one that often comes up is Facebook's acquisition of Instagram. In in this world, uh, with a with a sort of modern uh, growing Instagram, if there's one today, then then the regulator might say that an Instagram can't be bought by Facebook, um, but an Instagram would have a right to be able to distribute its content through Facebook, to to grow on the back of Facebook, and somehow dictate the terms under which it could do it, and then then assume. Uh, that this new Instagram is going to be quite happy to stay independent because, let's say, they're going to get the advantage of the big platform they can live off uh, for a period of time while they're growing um, without having to be acquired. Now, of course, when they get big enough, we've then got the question of what to do with them once they're the size of Facebook. And, and that certainly happened with Instagram where it got that big. Um, but it's that sort of public utility or, or regulated access or interoperability model that I think a lot of people are discussing right now precisely to sort of keep, keep that open marketplace, but not allow the big platforms to dictate or dominate. I think that's interesting because it leads me to think about the real player case where the idea was that, you know, Windows uh, launching their own media player was destructive and you needed to provide access for real player and others who wanted to build on the system. And it was all about the interoperability, open APIs, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, you know, where's real player today? There's no real player. They didn't. They got everything. I mean, they got the access to the APIs. They got all that stuff. Now, you can make the argument that they got it too late and that competition law is too slow and that it should have been uh, an ex-ante granting of an open API whilst the process was ongoing. But I, I don't know of any historical examples of that kind of thing working, the interoperability really making sure that others can grow and become equally large. Do you know of any historical examples yeah, uh, showing that? Yeah, I'm just thinking, I mean, um, uh, one of the interesting stories is the story of um, Chrome and Firefox versus Windows Explorer or, or Windows Exploder, as we used to uh, call it. Uh, but, you know, Microsoft, you know, was, do was dominant in the desktop market. It, it had, you know, the first browser that people came across. And actually, way back then, there was a reasonably concerted effort, I think, by them to, to try and, you know, split up the uh, HTML, the World Wide Web standard, so that there would be a difference between a Microsoft browser and other browsers to give themselves an edge. But interestingly, you know, today, as we sit here today, partly as a function, I think, of Apple's growing, uh, uh, Apple Apple computers growing, not not literally Apple's growing, but partly a function of that. <laughs> um, uh, and in spite of the fact that Windows still, you know, Microsoft still distributes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of operating systems with their uh, browser, which is now called Edge, isn't it, built into it. You know, Chrome And it's also built become, on Chrome, by the way. It's built on Chrome now, yeah. Um, so it is one where, but a com competitor's product, <laughs> Google Chrome, uh, uh, you know, did manage to get number one position uh, sort of past that. But I think there that depend on two things. One is that the, the World Wide Web did remain, you know, fully interoperable and, and the standard remained outside of the control of individual companies uh, like Microsoft or Google or anybody else. 
and the second part of it is is there was a real technology battle and and again um sort of you know it became quite well known that there were issues around security in particular with some of the the windows explorer stuff that was happening then chrome uh, was a faster slicker more secure product and I think for a period of time microsoft people even wouldn't disagree with that uh even if they've done a lot of catching up now um, and so there was a sort of genuine technology competition and then crucially, I think, an open standard that was not owned by any of the players that everyone was working to. Um, but if I, so, but if I, wanted to, if I wanted to push back on that, what I could say is that, yeah, that's all well and good, but you were talking about Google competing with Microsoft. Um, yes. None of those companies <laughs> are... It's not like there's a small startup that manages to grow really big on the large company's platform and then compete with them. It, technology competition seems to suggest at least some capability to innovate, invest, uh, and and improve your products. And maybe maybe that's what we should aim for, to make sure yeah. that there's really, really harsh competition between those large platforms. And that's that's sort of the aim of competition policy rather than anything else. That's a, that's a, that's a facile way to push back. But what would you say to that? Yeah, I, I mean, you're right, because it's not, it's not Opera <laughs> who's become the sort of d- dominant browser uh, in the market or any of the other sort of smaller offerings. And there are people who, who keep coming up with new ones. So I, I think you're right, but I think probably in that case, a lot of it's down to the marketing budgets that big companies do big marketing and uh, so they're able to do that so you're you know both microsoft and google you're right can literally sort of stick their browser offerings in front of us on a regular basis and actually do lots of you know behind the scenes deals where things get installed that otherwise wouldn't be installed uh onto onto other people's platforms uh, and the small companies really, you know, going to keep struggling to to compete on anything where um, getting in people's faces is key to getting market share. So I think that's that I would suspect is the the reason that that is not, you know, it's not a sort of perfectly sort of techn- technically level playing field. Um, people can come along with great technology. Uh, and again, the dynamic we talked about earlier would probably apply that if they came up with a fabulous new browser product, um, I think Google would quite quickly come shopping and do uh, uh, the other phrase with industry insiders know the acquihire, where you um, buy a, <laughs> a, a product, not because you care about the product. In fact, you shut it down once you've bought it, but because you care about the people. And there's a group of 10 or 15 brilliant people who you, you have showcased their talents through by creating some sort of fantastic browser. Let's say, <laughs> I would put good money on the Google Chrome team <laughs> sniffing that out and coming and saying, hey, why didn't you come and work for us? We'll buy your company. Um, so yes, <laughs> the technology uh, it, you know can be fabulous, but it's the marketing budgets I think that are one of the key edges that a big company has. Maybe the better competition policy would then be to publicly subsidize marketing randomly across every startup in a field so that everyone gets access to the same marketing power. I mean, uh, or restrict the, marketing, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, that has been in some of the remedies, remember, that, that um, well, I think one of the remedies uh, that the European Union imposed was that when Microsoft Windows was installed in the EU, it had to show you, I believe, a random a random browser from a number of different browsers with the idea being that, you know, when you install Windows... Browser choice. Yeah, you're right. Browser choice, yeah. Yeah. And and the idea being that then if you were, if Opera was in that list, it would be shown at least as many times as Chrome or Windows Explorer. Um, So that has been tried, but but I say that I think that's sort of, yeah, yeah, once when you install, that's not the same as the day in, day out sort of relentless uh, messaging that you get from companies about which products are better than others. 
I like that, though. I don't think I've ever seen any research done on, on how much of a marketing subsidy that actually would have been because the exposure of the Oprah brand um, across all of those browser choice windows, and I think they were all in the window, but they were randomly ordered, if I remember correctly. That was it, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I think, I mean, that's that's a significant uh, chunk of marketing subsidy for, for that brand. And it's, it, it's you're quite right. That is actually a remedy that, that comes about. So so we've talked about big and, 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 and bad, unfortunately, and how all of that ties together. And we talked about network effects where the value of the network increases with every new user. And, you know, ultimately you, you get some lock-in effects, people argue, although we should come back to that because it seems as if that's not always been true in the history of technology. But let's let's shift because there's a, there's a related phenomenon often confused with network effects, but quite different that is called economies of scale, yes. where there's some things that you can just do cheaper and better if you're big. Um, and so let's invert our question. What are the things that you're really happy about when it comes to tech companies being big? Things you think would be significantly worse if we had, if if they were broken up, or if we had smaller tech companies. Yeah. So, so uh, this economy of scale question, I think, is cr- critical. And let, let's take um, a couple of examples. So w- one is search again. I mean. I mean Search requires somebody to go off crawling around the web, like literally sort of querying every web server in the world uh, on a regular basis in order to have an index that's up to date and accurate. And, and you know, frankly, if you had, you know, hundreds of thousands of different uh, search engines all trying to compile their indexes every day, then, uh, you know, it's a bit like the Bitcoin debate and the energy usage. We would be, you know, expending vast amounts of energy and vast amounts of bandwidth uh, just on compiling that index constantly and recompiling that index constantly. And I would have to ask whether whether there is a real public benefit in that. Um, so there's some areas where it's just, you know, uh, doing the thing is resource intensive. And uh, if you've done it once and built a great index or done it a few times and built some great indexes with slightly different flavors, incrementally, there's very little, I think, additional public value in doing the job again and again and again and again. Um, so there are some things like that that, that I think uh, you know are sort of better done a few times than everybody doing them all of the time. And and then the other area we need to look at, is, again, is around internet bandwidth. We, we we sort of assume, I think, a lot of the time that this stuff just works and it's relatively easy. Um, but delivering content to people around the world in a really timely fashion requires a lot of infrastructure and it requires things like caching servers on the edge and lots of, like, sort of, sort of clever cooperation between people who have content and the people who are um, able to get that content out to individuals. And again, you have to ask, like, you know, um, what would be the implications if uh, we did have, you know, 50,000 different streaming services that were um, in common usage as opposed to a smaller number in, in terms of the impact that would have? Would you, would you have 50,000 caching servers available in every, every uh, locality in order to be able to service all of those? Or how would you, how would you sort of manage uh, all of the bandwidth that that would generate, uh, or, or would you see a degradation actually in the quality of of service that people would get because everybody's now competing uh, to get down the same channel? So again, these are not these are not, these are not uh, I think arguments to say um, you know people shouldn't be able to get into these markets. Absolutely should, but they are they are arguments to say be careful what you wish for, <laughs> and and if you uh, you know sort of artificially 
stimulated lots and lots of people to do something that's very resource intensive, um, what you're going to end up doing is expending more resources. Uh, and we have to question, I say, the incremental value you get from that. And it, would, it seems to me that another thing that benefits greatly from, from size is uh, the TechLash itself. It would be really hard if you had like a thousand different companies that you had to scrutinize in order to figure out uh, what they were doing or if there were good practices there or 10,000 or 100,000 companies. It's, it's much easier if you just have to, if you're a reporter on the big tech beat, there's like 10 companies that you have to keep your eye on. And if you keep your eye on them and everyone else keeps their eye on them, the collective scrutiny that's a Applied seems to me to be socially beneficial, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that's good. This, you're absolutely right that the pressure is on on the small number of companies. And you and I both know because we we worked in two of the very heavily scrutinized companies, and I'm sure you had the same kind of conversations where we, we would know <laughs> that there's a bunch of people doing much worse things uh, than we were being accused of doing uh, pretty pretty blatantly and openly uh, and yet people weren't sort of going after them the scrutiny the scrutiny window was was sort of fairly narrow and again I don't expect anyone to, to have any sympathy for us but arguably um, by focusing the scrutiny on a small number of companies where most of the people were most of the time you actually get the most public benefit um, going off and scrutinizing all those small companies with small numbers of users. Uh, it can be interesting, but may not yield a huge amount of public benefit if if they're not the services say that that the vast majority of the population are using on a daily basis. What we also, I mean, and the other intuition, of course, that I think everyone shares is that it's much easier for me to, to share my uh, personal data with a Facebook or an Amazon and my credit card data or whatever it might be with one of these large actors, partly because I know of the um, the focused interest and scrutiny that they're under, but also because I expect them to have all of their security and privacy practices pretty much in order, because I know that that takes a lot of resources. I know security work is really hard. I know that they can pay the best security people. So it seems to me as, you know, security is one of the things that you have mentioned when you and I have discussed this as, as something that could be materially worse if, if we were to get, uh, if we were to break up uh, a lot of the big tech companies. Now, that, that shouldn't be taken just as fear mongering. We could argue that, oh, sure, that's what you're supposed to say. <laughs> but, but I think that there's something about security that lends itself to the same kind of, of economies of scale, right? Yeah, I, I think, you know, candidly that sometimes there's a sort of wishful thinking, uh, uh, approach to competition that sort of kicks in, which is, which sort of says, yes, um, you know, I don't like the privacy, security, data collection, uh, safety practices of the big companies. Um, if we could disrupt the market, other people would come in and compete on being better at privacy, security, safety, et cetera. I just don't see it, you know, fr frankly. Um, smaller companies, if you're in a highly competitive market and you're trying to win users, frankly, the, the smaller you are and the younger you are in your development as a business, the more likely it is that you're going to take shortcuts in all of those areas because you, your focus is growth, growth, growth. And, and I was at Facebook so long enough ago when their focus was growth, 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 uh, and, and I'm sure similarly for Google. And, and I, you know, I saw all of those things improve over time, you know, privacy, security, safety, all of these things got better, um, as the company was more scrutinized and became more grown up and had more resources. Um, and I'm very confident that's, that smaller competitors were not as good at those things. Uh, and I don't see this dynamic. I just don't see it out there in a, you know, competitive tech marketplace. Why, 
why why any why we think anyone would be successful if they came into the market and said hey i'm now competing with the big guys uh and i'm going to move more slowly than carefully than them it sounds good but it doesn't work in practice like it's not it's not what wins you users um what wins you users is being fleet of foot moving fast uh, breaking things if necessary and uh, and keeping your costs down and spending all of your money on growth rather than spending your money necessarily on things like content moderation so yeah I, there's a sort of wishful thinking dynamic it's fairly reasonable to say look i want these big companies broken up because i don't like them because they're too powerful because they i think they sort of rip everybody off financially those, those are all good arguments but the argument that you know we need to break them up because then everyone's going to be competing on privacy, security, safety. I, no, <laughs> I just don't see that happening. And we, um, frankly, we have also had a number of companies that have tried to compete on privacy uh, for a long time. There is there is a search engine called DuckDuckGo, I believe, that does this. And uh, it's certainly seeing growth, but it's, it's not necessarily competing in any real sense um, across the search market with, with larger companies. It's, it's uh, catering to a niche audience that I think uh, very much appreciates their product and thinks what they're doing is absolutely right. But it's hard to compete on a single dimension. And I think that's the that's the problem here that uh, you're being expected to compete on only the privacy dimension when people also care about search quality they care about you know design they care about the the other people who are using the same search engine to the network effects point and so there's there's much more to competition than just a single dimension and hoping that you'll get competition along that single dimension if you if you have many smaller companies or if you break up big companies it seems to be uh, seems to seems to be a flawed model uh, frankly um i think the 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 other thing that's that's worthwhile discussing is it's if we go back in the history of antitrust law, which sort of came about in a similar environment to the one we're in now, and where where people had a lot of misgivings about large companies. We talked about Brandeis, there were several others. Um, it, it was really controversial from the outset. You know, people like Justice Holmes said that he thought it was deeply politicized and that that it would be a horrible piece of legislation to apply. And there was a lot of criticism around the antitrust law overall. So so let's start with. Let's start with a, uh, a sort of really basic question. Do you think we need antitrust law? I I, I think so. so it, it works on two dimensions. So one is the national, and the other is the sort of international. So I think we need to separate those out a little bit. So so one is you know within your own domestic market, and I think this is one of the big shifts that's taken place. Obviously, is that people are now competing across borders, but with, within a domestic market, um, I, th- I think you do need. Uh, some legislative tools that allow you to to, to intervene uh, if somebody has got to a position where they've got a captive audience, uh, they're the only ones who can deliver on something, and, and they are literally abusing that. So the sort of classic antitrust thing, which is, you know, I, I've, whatever it is, I've bought up all the supplies of something, I've locked everybody into contracts where they can only sell through me, and then I'm just going to jack my prices up to some ridiculous level because people have got nowhere else to go. And that was the sort of classic, say, sort of thing, national uh, view of the world. And, th- and those tools are still there. I think what's, what's changed is this sort of dimension now where the, the bigness may be globally big, uh, allowing you to sort of assert, uh, assert power locally. And so that, that I think is when we're talking about the tech giants, I think that's the bigger concern. It's it's not, uh, you know, that the internet is sort of locked down in any meaningful sense in any particular country. 
Uh, there will be local competitors. There are people who can sort of uh, offer all kinds of services. And say the market is open when it's an internet market. Um, but it is this sense that you know a, a small number of companies that are hugely powerful because of their global reach are able to, to um, compete on unfair terms with others because they've got that sort of global um, power engine behind them. And, and there, I think, um, this is what we're struggling with. I think the sort of the classic tools of antitrust law are less sort of designed to cope with that environment. And some of the concerns, frankly, are not really those classic concerns of somebody cornering you know, a, a supply of a particular um, good and and then being able to manipulate the prices of that particular good. Um, there are lots of options for internet advertising, you know, the sort of things that people worry about. Um, so it's not that the, the market is completely controlled. It's just, hey, the, the products that are being offered by these internet giants appear to be much more attractive and people are choosing them at, 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 at sort of vast, in vast numbers and therefore these companies are powerful and getting more powerful over time. Uh, there I think there's a lot more thinking to be done and it is being done now about how to deal with that and a lot of the the sort of uh, uh, harms that people are trying to present frankly are not price-based harms. It's not that the you know the advertising products of Google and Facebook are too expensive. They're actually very reasonable, particularly compared with the cost of other advertising products before. Um, but it's something else other than this sort of classic price-based monopoly concern. And that is maybe what is coming across in the DMA. But again, going back to the criticism of antitrust law, one of the things that we've heard just recently, for example, is that the National Security Council in in the US uh, seem to be increasingly worried that the DMA and the DSA is, is just going to hit American companies. And there's been this pattern of American companies going to through the honeymoon of the entrepreneur where everyone wants to take their picture with them into to sort of this, this shaky period of extraordinary success. And then they dive into the long dark night of antitrust and hopefully they come out in some way you know on the other side of that and and they can either become a persistent innovator or you know as in some cases die into consultancy <laughs> yeah and, and and it seems to me that that criticism is is louder and louder over time do you do you think it's fair to criticize the european union for being politicized in its competition work I mean, I think there's there's no doubt that um, the fact that the compet or that the the dominant players are uh, not European and in particular are American is an issue. I mean, it, it can't you know, it can't be in politics and like not 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 uh, uh, consider those sort of international dimensions to be an issue. Having said that, I don't think that necessarily um, is the driving force. I think the driving force still of European competition law is protecting European consumers. Um, but how uh, how politically safe they feel to be aggressive, for example, you know, will reflect to a certain extent the fact that it's uh, um, non-European companies that are being uh, impacted. I mean, again, actually, to be very fair to the uh, uh, Competition Commission, the European Competition Commission, they're, they're pretty robust often with um, European uh, industry and European national champions that, or, or uh, the continental champions, as it were, that have sort of tied things up and gone too far. So I don't, I don't think I said I, I wouldn't question the motives of that core driving force, which is protect European consumers. Um, but certainly, as a politician, it, it is easier to legislate for something. 
that's going to hit you know businesses outside of your jurisdiction i mean if nothing else the the lobbying is less intense than it will be when you're trying to hit um local businesses and there are instances in the legislation where you sort of see attempts in european legislation to, to go a little easier on traditional publishers and, and their presence on the internet than it is to go on the the new global slash american uh, companies that are big on the internet and that's that's a sort of natural outcome i think of lobbying efforts and, and the fact that local lo- lobbying uh, tends to be more impactful than foreign lobbying if we can put it that way Yes, I I think that's right, and it's sort of it's very natural. If you are a politician, you're actually there also to defend your own community's interests in some sense, I suppose. But but this this the the other question, I guess, that ultimately it all boils down to is, and I think there's been a lot of debate about this recently, sort of a method debate around bigness and competition is. Is competition law really an effective means to this end that we seem to, to, well, we kind of disagree about the end. Some people say it's consumer welfare and we really want to maximize consumer value. And, and there's now an increasing criticism of that from the US, from people like the newly elected FCC chairman, Lena Khan, who say that, no, we should actually also be looking at innovation effects, whether or not innovation is being chilled down, if it's slowed down, et cetera. And so not just look at consumer benefit, but let's also look at uh, innovation in the ecosystem, which is, is, a, a sort of a, a new slash old version of, of competition law, but assuming those metrics, consumer welfare and and innovation, um, what are the? Can you give me like three good examples of effective antitrust interventions that really mm. changed um, the the equation? Uh, um, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm just going to react to your, <laughs> your comment on innovation. Actually, in a sense, in in the innovation driver is future consumer welfare. So there's sort of present consumer welfare, and the re, and the reason you want the innovation is because your that's assumption is that innovation will deliver future consumer welfare. And I think that's that's sort of quite a nice sort of way to think of it as as being sort of consistent with the picture. Um, uh, yeah, interventions. No, I, I struggle, and and the reason is well. Uh, we can think of the Microsoft Google example and, and, and one interpretation of that, 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 you know, what, what, um, what competition law tends to do is, uh, plays catch up, but to quite an extreme level. So it takes so long to bring a competition case that by the time you get to some kind of settlement and remedy, you know, in business cycles, uh, often the original complainant has, has gone. And so the real media example is the classic one is just, you know, Arguably, if uh, competition authorities had managed to, you know, force uh, Microsoft Windows to offer real the real player uh, version, you know, within three weeks of them making their complaint, the world might have been different. But as it was, it took years, even though they were successful, it took them years and therefore it's a little bit too late. But the the one the um, theory that is sometimes advanced is look the, the effect of the competition cases on Microsoft writ large was to make them extremely cautious uh, because you are when you're in a competition environment you you inevitably slow down your acquisitions and and you tread extremely carefully because you don't want to get into more trouble and while Microsoft, there's, a, there's, just a, there's an anecdote about that I think is right. worth just inserting here, which is that yeah. there was an article a couple of years ago where they where they talked about this very phenomenon at Microsoft and how it had changed their view on innovation and new markets they wanted to enter. And and one of the key terms that kept being repeated at Microsoft, according to the article, was "Let's not send Bill to DC again." Yes, and, yeah. <laughs> and and there is something about that. Your XX yeah. being called in front of Congress or in front of the European Parliament 
that has a sort of, uh, it gives people pause in a company, whether they like it or not. You're quite right. Just yeah. sorry, I thought it was a, a worthwhile yeah, yeah. anecdote too. <laughs> it, it is. And, and and then the flip side of that, yeah, uh, and again, the people who study this, and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll have strong views on it, but the flip side was that there is a view that that was part of what allowed Google to, to grow as it grew actually into other markets, like it's, you know, online um, office uh, products. So there was a there was an, an element of creating more space for a Google to grow up and potentially a, a, an Apple as well, um, because Microsoft, the big beast of the time, had been hobbled. So so that's a sort of second order effect. And, and now I think some of the proponents who who want to see lots of competition cases brought against uh, Google and Facebook. Part of the rationale for that is, is uh, you know, that if Google and Facebook are facing competition threats, they're going to move more slowly. So it's an anti-innovation. You know, they're going to be less innovative. Uh, and whilst they're moving more slowly and are engaging in less innovation, that creates a space for others to come into the market and do more. And, and again, that's certainly, I think, um, reasonably accurate from my experience that, that as the competition heat sort of grew under a company like Facebook, you know, things like let's just go and buy WhatsApp, you know, was was not on the agenda anymore. It was you were you you were you know super careful about everything you did um, because you were literally thinking of it in terms of it being a a, a future competition case. You know, any wrong move would end up in a competition case. Um, and so that question, you know, now that we're seeing these these sort of uh, um, pressures on Google and Facebook in particular, will that? Uh, not directly, but indirectly help other people um, because they will be able to to get busy on things while while um, these sort of very large companies are tied up fighting defensive uh, competition cases. It's interesting because that that leads me to ask the obvious question, which is Microsoft didn't disappear. They're still a very successful company. They're still very, very large. So the, the theory of competition is is not that one company will rise and then another company will go away, but that we'll get more very big companies or sort of what's, yeah. the, what's the end state there. And I think that's reasonable in a way. Uh, and I think that I, I want to sort of, I want to project into the future a bit here and, and sort of get your, your best effort guesses. Because one of the things that you saw, for example, in the breaking up of the telecoms monopoly in, in the US was that within a few years it had reconsolidated. And if, I'm sure that if you were to 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 break up the tech giants uh, after a few years, they would reconsolidate because that's sort of the way that, that markets work. Uh, but if you look at this, um, the, all of the competition work, all of the criticism of big that you see today, the entire environment that we're living in. Now, fast forward 10 years, do you think that we'll still have the same top 10 tech companies as we have today? Uh, do you I think I, that any of them will have disappeared or that uh, there will be any new ones? Yeah, I, I think there will definitely be new ones. And again, there's a, there's a sort of long view to be taken here, um, which is, you know, I, I'm sitting here and I'm uh, talking to you over a Google Pixel book. And I think you're on a Apple MacBook and yep. you know, people will be listening on all kinds of different devices and, and people can go, oh, you know, it's so dominated. There are these sort of small number of tech companies dominating the market. But let's go back some 15, 20 years. We'd all have been on Windows computers. <laughs> there weren't, um, so we now have a number of platforms. You can argue it's not enough, but we have more platforms than we used to have for our personal computing. Um, and personally, I think it's, it's going to keep growing. It's not, it's not going to you know, be a, a thousand uh, different sort of platforms coming in. But incrementally, I think as the market expands, it can accommodate, 
you know, uh, a few more people coming to the marketplace each year. If we look at the social media side of things, again, people sort of scream about the social media concentration. Actually, today, with TikTok and Snap and, you know, various other services out there, I'd argue it's actually a little bit less concentrated than it was in the bad old days when it was all MySpace. Um, and, and, and again, so I think this incremental growth of ch- choice of products is, is, uh, going to happen in this space. Um, I don't think it's going to like consolidate all the way down. And I think it is different from telecoms because t- telecoms is a pretty, in a sense, sort of u- unidimensional product. It's like, you know, deliver some these days bits to a house down some form of wire or wireless. It's pretty sort of standard commoditized product. I actually think the markets that we're talking about are more interesting so so that we will see some competition effect. We won't see another search engine necessarily at the scale of Google, but there'll be competition effects for discovery of products that won't necessarily look like search, but there'll be other things coming into the market. So that's my view. As I, as I say, I'm uh, optimist on this front, but I think we will see steady growth in choice, um, uh, but the choices will be products that look a little different from each other uh, and yet are all very useful and innovative tech products. And all draw on the economy of scale. So, I mean, a reasonable prediction would be to say that in 10 years, there will be more companies designated by big tech. You'll have to expand the GAFA. So it's will be GAFA, TAPA, MATA, something, something, because <laughs> you will essentially have more companies. They will still be really big because that's the best way they can serve the market. And they will still be competing between themselves in different ways that could generate yes. consumer benefit. Yes. Is that a reasonable prediction? Uh, I, I think that's a reasonable prediction. But, um, but this gravitation and going so back to earlier in the conversation that you described, I think, very effectively, it's a pharma market, a pharma, pharmaceutical market, not a farmer's market. But it's, yeah. it's, a, it's more like the pharmaceutical market where it's, it's um, big and small than it is going to be uh, like the literal farmer's market where it's all... Lit- and, and maybe that's a, a, a terrible pun to end on, but... Yeah, it but is it's a very good... No, please, the, yeah. go ahead, do it. Because yeah, <laughs> I think, in a sense, you know, the, the a lot of the frustration is, you know, people who built the internet, who love the internet, saw it as a literal farmer's market. We all turn up with our goods in our, in our sort of smocks. We're all small scale and we all compete with each other equally. It has turned into the other kind of pH... ARMA, pharma market. Um, uh, but I think there's a certain inevitability to that that is driven even further by regulation, our core subject, uh, towards that. It, you know, you can't have a pharmaceutical market where everybody just turns up with their homemade pills and sells them uh, unless you're in San Francisco. Um, yes. So we've got to be, uh, I think we're in a market that's going to have some sort of large players and lots and lots of uh, small players around that. And I think from a consumer point of view, that's actually going to be quite healthy. It sort of balances the consumer interests and the broader societal interest in this being a reasonably sort of well-managed and well-governed space. Well, you just gave us our tagline for this episode. It's from farmer's <laughs> market to pharma market. Farmer market. Thank you for that. That's brilliant. Okay, then. Uh, I think that's an excellent note to close on. Um, as always, keep your comments coming and let us know if you have any thoughts or ideas about the podcast. And you can find the podcast on Richard's website, which is www.regulate.tech Perfect, and thank you for listening. We hope to have you with us again next week. 